Good morning. I'm just, I'm just trying to do the impossible to adjust my focal length so that I can see my notes and see you at the same time. I don't think I've done it. So, so if I appear to be ignoring you, I don't mean it. Grace gifts and the Barnabas effect, encouragement. Uh, whenever I read the New Testament, I'm always aware that it wasn't actually written for me. Take, for instance, the reading today from Romans. The NIV study Bible gives its purpose as to introduce Paul to the Romans and give a sample of his message before he arrives in Rome. Since I'm not a Roman and Paul is not about to arrive, then it wasn't actually written for me. However, it contains fundamental truths about Christian faith given to Paul by God's grace and through the Holy Spirit, which are universal and so they do apply to me. Therefore, whenever I read the New Testament, I always ask myself three questions. Number one, I take as my starting point how might someone in the first century have understood that passage when he heard it or read it? Then I ask myself a transitional question. What fundamental truths does it have which apply to me? And then finally, the third question, is there anything I should be doing as a consequence of what I've just come to understand? Uh, reading the Bible in this way is never a superficial exercise. It requires some study, it involves time, it involves effort, but it always repays. Fortunately, I'm in a position where I have the time to do that. In effect, what I'm doing is I'm preparing a private sermon which I preach to myself. And that's a great way to read the Bible, if ever you've got the time. So the reading this morning... Let's take the reading and ask ourselves the first question. How might someone uh, in the first century have understood that? Verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Well, the words spiritual act of worship actually are not there in the Greek. That's a translation. Uh, the words actually are, this is your reasonable or logical service. Uh, this means that the sacrifice is to be intelligent in contrast with those offered by ritual or rule, but with the intelligence of those who are new creatures in Christ and so are thinking differently. The same sense comes through in verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word transformed is actually metamorpho, which can be read as transfigured. The same word used to describe the transfiguration of Christ, where his physical appearance changed and his face and his clothes shone like the sun. So my mind is to be metamorphed. I think I made that word up, but you know what I mean. My mind is to be metamorphed into a new creature in order that, according to the remainder of verse 2, I will be able to test and approve what God's will is, 
his good, pleasing and perfect will. Sometimes Jesus is misquoted. Do not judge lest you be judged. In the sense that we shouldn't judge anyone of anything. But actually Jesus was talking there about the hypocrites, the play actors, those who accuse someone of doing something they're actually doing themselves. Paul here is allowing us to judge, but with our metamorphed mind, which is the mind of Christ. That is how we are to judge. Verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you... uh, Let's just stop there. That word, grace. Grace is undeserved favour, which God grants to us. He really needs just to bear that mind, that word in mind for a moment. Uh, the Greek word for grace, charis, because of what follows in a little while. So let's just park that there for a while. Continuing with verse 3. For, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment. Here again, Paul is telling us that we should now be thinking differently with our metamorphed mind. I am getting my own importance into perspective. I am not more important. I am not less important. I have my unique and rightful place, as Paul explains a little later, just like where we all leaned on each other with our arms. So we are supporting each other. No one more important, no one less important, altogether. Continue again with verse 3. But rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. This phrase, the measure of faith God has given you. You know that had me puzzled for a while. Um, A while ago, someone here in this place uh, prayed for me with the laying laying on of hands according to how she felt God was leading her to pray, uh, which means that she was praying prophetically. She prayed that I would have more faith. I didn't actually understand that at the time, since I have faith. A while later, someone else mentioned the very same verse, almost as an aside, in his preaching. Uh, So I asked him what he thought the phrase, more faith, meant. Uh, I'll paraphrase what he said. Faith is a gift of God's grace. It is not a fixed amount, like an on-off switch, which I either have or I don't have. Rather, it is measured out for individuals according to God's grace. And it can grow and shrink in variable amounts according to the circumstances we find ourselves in. That came as a bit of a surprise to me because I thought faith was something you either had or you didn't. And I was thinking of faith as something that is to do with me, my free will. So, I checked it out. Four stories, four incidents from the story of Jesus. Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat, and the storm was raging. The disciples woke him up because they were afraid. So he calmed the storm and said to them, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith. On another occasion, the disciples were again in the boat and the weather was rough 
Jesus was walking on the water towards them. Peter jumped out of the boat and started to walk towards them. Uh, uh, because the weather, uh, again the weather was bad, uh, and he started to sink. Uh, Jesus came al- uh, alongside him, reached out his hand, and caught him and said, You of little faith, why did you doubt? On a number of occasions, Jesus spoke to various people, Your faith has made you whole. A Roman centurion asked Jesus for help concerning a sick servant. Perhaps the centurion was recognizing that Jews were forbidden by law to enter the house of a Gentile or they would become ceremonially unclean. So he said to Jesus, Lord, I do not deserve to have you under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. So Jesus was astonished and said, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith so Jesus spoke of no faith he spoke of little faith he spoke of faith and he spoke of great faith he spoke of faith as a sliding scale of measure my mistake was that I was looking at faith as an on off switch um, which is switched on and off by my own free will. Rather, it's this sliding scale of measure which God gives individuals according to his grace and his calling and which enables us to work in various ways and to various extents according to what he has preordained for us to do to his glory. Faith is a gift from God, a grace gift. So with someone, in my case, exercising the grace gift of prophetic prayer and someone else exercising the grace gift of teaching these compounded together and helped me to move on in my journey of discipleship and understanding. This is what grace grace gifts are for. They build up the church and promote the gospel. Continuing uh, with verses 4 and 5, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these body and these members do not have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. This is Paul's well-known metaphor of the interconnectedness of our individual bodies being like the interconnectedness of the body of Christ. There is no redundancy in the parts of our body. Every part has its unique role to play. Have you ever noticed there are no animals with an odd number of legs? There are animals with two legs, four legs, six legs and so on. But there are no animals with one leg, three leg or five leg and so on. Why not? Perhaps because that odd leg would be redundant, get in the way, might be a bit of a hindrance, the animal tripped over it. There are no redundancies anywhere in God's creation. Everything plays its unique part. Something some of you might recognize. I have two ears, but there isn't one more than I need. I have two eyes, 
but that isn't one more than I need. With one ear, I can still hear, but I can't find the direction in which sound is coming from. So I can do more with two, two, two ears than I can with one ear. With one eye, I can still see, but with two eyes, I can judge distance. So I can do more with two eyes than I can do with one eye. Sometimes one of my ears gets a bit blocked with wax, so I lose the ability to determine the direction in which the sound is coming from. That makes crossing the roads much more difficult because I use my eyes to see the traffic, my ears to hear the traffic, and decide uh, which direction it's coming from. With only one ear, my eyes, my eyes have to compensate, uh, and I spend more time just looking around. There's no redundancy in, my, in having two eyes or in two ears. My eyes and my ears work together to make crossing the road a much safer experience. Back to Paul's metaphor. We, as the body of Christ, have many different grace gifts, but there's no redundancy, and they all work together to support each other. Continuing at verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each one of us. Remember, we parked that word charis, grace. Well, let's go back to it. Here, the word translated as gifts is charismata, which means free gifts which God gives to each of us as he chooses according to his grace and favour. So we have charis, grace. We have charisma, grace gifts, charisma. And we have charismata, which is simply the plural of grace gifts. Continuing with verse 6, if your gift, literally your charisma, is prophesying then prophesy in proportion to your faith, in the measure of your faith. In proportion to your faith is another way of saying in the measure of your faith. Verse 7 and 8 uh, lists more charismata, grace gifts from God. Verse 7, if it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encouraging, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is show mercy, do it cheerfully. Finally, in verse 9 to 13, Paul tells us how to exercise the grace gifts from God. The grace, grace gifts God has given each one of us according to his own choosing and his own measure. Verse 9, love must be sincere. Grace gifts are to be exercised lovingly. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never lack zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. That is how I think someone reading that passage in the first century would have understood it.
So, our second question. What fundamental truths uh, does the passage contain which apply to me? I've got five points. Number one. This list of grace gifts is not complete. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul gives a slightly different list. There, they are not only called grace gifts, charismata, they're also called manifestation of the Spirit and are given for the common good. The word manifestation, phanerosis, means to make visible, to make clear, to uncover, to lay bare, or to reveal. This means to me that I may have grace gifts which I am not aware of and through which the Holy Spirit is groaning with expectation that I will become aware of them and start to use them to point to Jesus. So, I ought to be asking myself, what are my grace gifts? Point number two. We shouldn't be afraid of the grace gifts. The word charismatic has associations with the the Pentecostal church and has come to be associated with a particular and exuberant style of worship. But as we've seen, the true meaning of grace gifts, which God bestows on each one of us, no one excluded, through which God works by his, through, through which God works by his spirit. We are channels through whom God works so that together, we are building up the body of Christ and reflecting his true nature in the church and in the world. Jesus is made manifest, visible and clear through each individual's exercise of charismata. No one has it all. Everyone has something. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment. This means for me that I should be embracing the grace gifts when I discover them, not in any sense drawing back from them. Point number three. Don't listen to anyone who tells you you haven't got enough enough faith as a reason why things are not happening. That's quite the wrong thing to say to anyone. Since faith is itself a grace gift given by God to individuals according to God's measure, then that measure is right for each one of us at the moment. Hence the suggestion that I don't have enough faith is a direct contradiction of God. That suggestion puts itself in place of God and attempts to do God's job for him. That suggestion sins against God. I have the faith that God gives me now according to the measure he wants me to have now. Number four. The exercise of grace gifts must be done appropriately. If someone asks for healing, it's no use exercising the gift of administration unless, of course, it helps to get them into hospital. Sensitivity and appropriateness in exercising grace gifts are most important. This means for me that I must be intelligent in the use of the grace gifts given. Point number five. 
the exercise of grace gifts must always be done lovingly and love must be sincere the sincere Paul the sincere love Paul talks about here uh, in verse 9 is the New Testament agape it is very easy to go through life with a pretense to love we can learn how to speak kindly we can learn how to dodge around and avoid hurting feelings we can learn how to appear to take an interest we can learn how to express indignation when we hear of injustice but God is calling us to real and sincere love that goes far beyond pretense and politeness sincere love requires concentration time and effort it means helping others to become better and get out of the hole they're in it demands personal involvement and perseverance it is prompted by the Holy Spirit and wells up from within us Paul wrote to the Galatians for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value for the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself as love in some translations faith working itself out as love the love that we express the agape love is the manifestation of our faith in the world our faith made real so that people can see it now let's be specific an example in various ways lately we've been thinking about the book of Acts there's one character who pops up there, Barnabas. His real name uh, was Joseph, and he was a Levite from Cyprus. The apostles gave him the name Barnabas, which simply means, uh, which literally means, son of Paracletus, son of encouragement. Barnabas was a Paraclete. Para, as in parallel lines, that run alongside each other, and Kalio, to call. A paraclete is an advocate, a counsellor, an encourager, a comforter, one who is called to come alongside. Who else in the New Testament is called a paraclete? Well, in 1 John, Jesus is described as a paraclete. One who comes alongside to speak to the Father on our behalf. In John's Gospel, Jesus himself said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another paraclete, to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Another here means one of the same kind. So the Holy Spirit is a paraclete of the same kind to Jesus. We see that the nature of the paraclete is the nature of God. It's hardly surprising then that in Romans 12, Paul lists one of the grace gifts as that of the paraclete. Translated in the NIV, as the gift of encouraging. Why is encouragement so important in the church? Let's start with an illustration of why discouragement is so dreadful. Discouragement, an instrument of the devil, a short story. Once upon a time, it was announced that the devil was going out of business and would sell all his equipment to those who were willing to pay the price. 
On the big day of the sale, his tools were attractively displayed. There was envy, jealousy, hatred, malice, deceit, sensuality, pride, idolatry, and other implements of evil all on display. Each of the tools was marked with its own price tag according to its effectiveness. Over in the corner, all by itself, was a harmless-looking, wedge-shaped tool, very much worn down, but it bore a higher price tag than all of the others. Someone asked the devil, what is it? And he said, this is discouragement. The next question came quickly, why is it priced so high, even though it's plain to see that it's very much, very much worn down? Because, replied the devil, it is more useful to me than all the others. I can press it in and I can pry open bit at a time without noticing I can get into a man's heart. With that, I can get near to him when no other tool will work. Once I get inside, I can use him in whatever way suits me best. It is well worn because I use it on everyone. Few people know it even belongs to me. The tool was priced so high, no one could buy it. And to this day, it's never been sold. It still belongs to the devil. And he still uses it on mankind. Author unknown. At sporting events, the spectators play a very important role in encouraging the players. We also need people to cheer us on in life. Encouragement, correctly understood, is within the language of the New Testament. The word paraclete comes something like 35 times in the New Testament. The church should be one of the most encouraging places in the world. So this gift could be called exhortation or comfort or consolation or advocacy or encouragement. It is the divine ability to lift the load from a brother or sister and help them along the way. Does that mean if I don't have the grace gift of encouragement, uh, I cannot be an encourager? No, it doesn't mean that, not at all. All of us should be encouragers. There are at least two places in the New Testament where Christians are commanded to encourage each other. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Hebrews 3.13 But encourage one another day after day. This workload of load lifting is something all of us are to perform for each other uh, as we see the need and have the opportunity. Now, back to Barnabas. Every appearance of Barnabas in the scripture finds him encouraging others in their faith, developing leaders and building up the church. Uh, Barnabas sold his field and gave the money to the apostles, an act of encouragement when Paul arrived in Jerusalem for the first time following his conversion, the local Christians were understandably reluctant to welcome him. They thought his story was a trick. Only Barnabas was willing to risk his life to meet Paul and then convince the others 
that Paul was now a vibrant believer in Jesus. It was Barnabas who encouraged the reluctant Mark to go with him and Paul to Antioch. Here are four attributes of the grace gift of the paraclete based on the story of Barnabas uh, in Acts. I think what I'm going to do here is just read them, read them down and I'm going to just pause between each one. So let's ask ourselves when we do that, do I know anyone in the church who's like that? Or do I see myself in that? Remember that a grace gift comes from God through the Holy Spirit. So these attributes do not come from the person themselves, but may seem to come from outside themselves. It may be seen as a a drive or a compulsion, something they can't stop themselves doing or can't resist, because it's the Holy Spirit encouraging them to be like that. So, number one. An encourager gives generously of himself, herself, in time, energy, money, or anything that's needed. Do we see people like that in this church? We certainly do. An encourager sees the grace of God in an imperfect church and always expounds it. Do we, see, do we have people here who are always referring to God, pointing out how God is in things and in situations? We certainly do. An encourager looks for and seeks out the best in others and always has a positive outlook. Do we have positive-minded people whose enthusiasm robs off on us and encourages us? We certainly do. An encourager helps others to succeed unselfishly without counting the personal cost. Do we have people here who act unselfishly? We certainly do. I can think of a number of people in this place who have the grace gift of the paraclete. In conclusion, how can we summarize and apply this understanding to ourselves? Seven short sentences, and then I've nearly finished. Number one, charismata are grace gifts given by God to everyone in the church. Number two, they're given to build up the church, to proclaim the gospel and to glorify God. Number three, when we look, we can see evidence of the charismata at work in this church. Number four, we should seek out what other charismata God has already given to each one of us. Number five, we should exercise the charismata intelligently and appropriately. Number six, 
we should exercise the charismata soberly without being proud and puffed up. Seven, we should exercise the charismata lovingly, which is the agape love of the New Testament. Last week, uh, Jonathan was here, and uh, traditions have to start somewhere. He started what might become a new tradition. He gave us all some homework. So I'd like to give us some homework. So this is our homework. When we meet for coffee, when we meet in our prayer triplets and in our house groups, and when we come together for lunch or wherever we come together in our groups uh, next week and in the times ahead, discuss amongst ourselves what charismata we may see, see in people here in this church. Discuss it amongst yourselves and name those people. And then pray about it and go and talk to them and encourage them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for the way in which uh, your word has such depth, such truth. Uh, the way in which your word continually reveals itself in different ways. How one day we can read it and see one thing, another we can read it and see something else. We thank you for those over thousands of years who have spent their time translating your word so that we can understand it. We thank for your Holy Spirit who is with us, guiding us and encouraging us to understand your word and to apply it. We thank you for your grace and the gifts of your grace by which we are made complete. And we thank you that we can exercise these grace gifts to build up the church and for your glory. And we thank you that the grace gifts manifest Jesus in the world through us. Be with us now as we go forward and help us to, by your spirit, to dwell on these ideas so that we can uh, move forward with them and be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.